Today on Not Sam Wrestling, some very noteworthy promos. FMW is explored on Dark Side of the Ring. The draft has begun, and we need to do a deep dive into the King of the Ring tournament. This is Not Sam Wrestling. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. For the 363rd time, welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. Of course, it's a lot more than 363 if you subscribe to our Patreon. If you're a Not Sam shill over at patreon.com slash Wrestling. Now look, the show comes out on Monday. So at the time that this officially, officially comes out, comes out, we don't know what's happened on Monday Night Raw. We know what happened on Friday Night SmackDown from the draft. So I'm assuming that on Thursday, Not Sam Thursday, which is the bonus podcast that comes out exclusively on Patreon.com slash Not Sam Wrestling every week, that we will talk a lot about whatever happens on Monday Night Raw and what the whole draft picture looks like. And I'm sure that we'll also uh, touch on that next week here on Not Sam Wrestling. But in the meantime, I don't I don't want to get into a lot of hypotheticals. Plus, there's too much to talk about, right? We're going to do a deep dive into the King of the Ring today uh, with the official announcement. It's been long rumored, but the official announcement that the King of the Ring tournament is coming back and for the first time, a Queen's Crown tournament for the women's division headed to the WWE starting next week, or I guess technically this week on SmackDown. It starts this Friday and then on to Monday, October 11th on Raw. So we will talk a lot about the King of the Ring, but I do have a couple of uh, things to talk about that went down on SmackDown. I mean, some people might not talk about what happened on SmackDown, but those are probably the type of people that if somebody came up to them and asked them to do something, they would just do it. Me, somebody comes up to me and they go, hey, Sam, can I have a glass of water? And if they do that, I take out my Glock and I put it at their forehead and I leave their brains splattered all over the kitchen. And then who's ever next to me goes, Sam, he was just a thirsty guy. And I go, well, I'm on a hairpin trigger right now. <laughs> what a promo, huh? I would say the fact that it's 2021 and we really have to look at this week and say the promos that popped me, the promos that made me talk were Arn Anderson officially announcing that every morning he wakes up choosing violence, that he has murder on the mind. That when a homeless man comes up to him with a coffee cup and says, can I borrow a nickel, he considers blowing their brains out. And Brock Lesnar, I mean, Brock Lesnar, with just the, the promo of a lifetime. Anybody that doesn't acknowledge, we always talk about acknowledging the tribal chief, acknowledge the tribal chief. If, if anybody doesn't acknowledge how good Brock Lesnar is at this professional wrestling thing by now, I don't know what you're thinking. The idea that Brock Lesnar just shows up four or five times a year and doesn't care about wrestling is totally wrong. I think that 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 if Brock Lesnar could wrestle as often as he fought in the UFC or as anybody fights in the UFC, you know, two or three times a year, go to TV to build that up and that could be his career, Brock Lesnar would have been wrestling this entire time. He clearly loves what he's doing, whether even he will admit it or not. But the fact that, I mean, you can go back to the Royal Rumble of 2020. And the fact that Drew McIntyre won, there were two ingredients being added to that that made Drew McIntyre's coronation that special. One of the ingredient was, ingredients was Drew McIntyre and the fact that we were all waiting for this moment and the fact that we all knew this was our guy. 
But an even stronger ingredient was that Brock Lesnar was not, was the way in which Brock Lesnar eliminated so many of our heroes, was the way that he disregarded Rey Mysterio and Kofi Kingston. I mean, even the way he sized up Keith Lee and he kind of laughed at him and he smirked at him, but he sized him up. Even in that moment, he put over Keith Lee. Keith Lee was an NXT superstar at the time and Brock Lesnar put him on a pedestal by acknowledging, okay, this is different. When the Claymore eliminated Brock Lesnar and he laid on the floor for minutes just selling what what, what, what uh, 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 Drew McIntyre had done to him, selling it, it made Drew McIntyre. Brock Lesnar has done that for Daniel Bryan. He's done that for AJ Styles. He's done that for so many people. There are times when the story dictates that Brock Lesnar will just simply dominate. That is the story that we're telling. We're going to SummerSlam, coming off of Brock Lesnar ending The Undertaker's WrestleMania streak and letting the world know this is a different Brock Lesnar, that the WWE has never had a beast like this. Not only does he end The Undertaker's streak, but he dominates John Cena in a way that nobody has ever been able to dominate John Cena. And it starts to tell this story of a completely different entity. But... Brock Lesnar is not just showing up and saying, I win or I'm not coming. That's the story that, that's the character. That's the story that we'd like to tell. But that's the reason that we get that from him is because that's the story that he's telling. That's the character that he's portraying. And him cutting that promo on SmackDown, just interrupting Kayla and whoever the hell she was talking to and taking the microphone for himself Babyface Brock in 2021 is a different animal. Babyface Brock, ponytail, babyface, bootleg, jean cut Brock with that old school logo, t-shirt logo on his belt buckle is just about as much fun as you could ever handle. Who doesn't want to go wood cutting with Brock Lesnar? You want to go elk hunting with Joe Rogan? You want to go wood cutting with Brock Lesnar? And you want to go car racing with Thurman Sparky Plug. This is what you want to do with your life. This is how a man becomes a man. Bearded, ponytailed up Brock Lesnar. And he looks at the camera and he keeps, number one, announcing he's a free agent, which is a big deal. You know, the way I would have called it, I would have had Brock Lesnar, as I said last week, get drafted to Raw. And we find out that that's Paul Heyman's doing to separate Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns. Now, is he did he do that to increase the value of Brock Lesnar? Did he do that on Brock Lesnar's behalf or did he do that on Roman Reigns' behalf to separate them? We don't know. But... They're going in a different direction. He says that he's a free agent. He can go on whatever brand he chooses and that his friend Paul Heyman did that for him. And he said his friend Paul Heyman multiple times and he even winked at the camera. Like the guy in the bathroom in Devil's Advocate. Solid wink at the camera. I want to use, I mean, the fact that within within a week of each other, I mean, basically Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, just like within five days of each other, from Sunday night to Friday night, we got the meme of Becky Lynch giving the thumbs up and the meme of Brock Lesnar winking. I mean, we are just living in in, a, in an amazing age of digital content. We're blessed. We're blessed to have both those things. Uh, I thought there was good and bad with the draft. With the draft itself, I don't. I, 
Nothing disappointed me about the draft except that the New Day is being split up again. I can't for the life of me understand, and I won't judge anything too harshly with the draft again until the story gets told, and I have some follow-up there as far as stories getting told. But that's, you know, I like to I like to leave things open to say, okay, where is this going? What is this going to mean before I get all upset about it? You know, it takes a lot to get me upset. But I do not for the life of me understand why Big E, Xavier Woods, and Kofi Kingston would not be a unit. Now, I was thrilled with the addition of Hit Row on SmackDown. I didn't think it would happen. I thought they were going to stay at NXT. I was really happy to see them get moved to SmackDown. Either Raw or SmackDown would have made me happy. But I think they're going to make a huge impact on SmackDown. And then Swerve tweets out, at Kofi Kingston, let's do this. Like he was the Undertaker calling his shot at Brock Lesnar at a UFC fight. And I was like, oh my God, I forgot about that. We are now living in a universe where we could get Swerve versus Kofi on a SmackDown. That's amazing to me. So make no mistake. I'm not at all mad and you to see Xavier Woods and Kofi Kingston on SmackDown. The match potential is incredible. Oh, and we don't even know the match potential because the draft's not over at the time of this recording. But I just don't understand the logic. I mean, I feel like the New Day was separated so that Big E could establish himself as a singles talent. And I supported the New Day being separated by the draft last year. I thought that was a good idea. I thought it it may it meant that Big E would have the opportunity to completely stand on his own without breaking up the New Day, without disintegrating this unit that is probably the strongest three-man group that maybe pro wrestling has ever seen. You know, who's had a, a reign like the New Day continues to have? It's 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 remarkable. And, and I know you're going to sit there with the Freebirds, the original NWO, uh, the Von Eric. Like, there's plenty. There's plenty of trios. But as far as trios go, it's hard to beat the New Day. But I feel like mission accomplished. I feel like we got there. It took the full year, but in one full year, not only did Biggie establish himself as a singles talent, he became the Intercontinental Champion, and he closed off that 365 days with the WWE Championship around his waist. At that point, we're good to go. And then when he spent the last two weeks back reunited with the New Day, because even though he's a SmackDown talent, he's the WWE Champion now, he could be on Raw. I felt like you heard the reactions. You felt the responses. You realized, okay, people are ready for this to come back. This is what people were waiting for. So I don't know why, what the logic is there in, in keeping them apart, but I'm ready for the story to play itself out. What I am fearful of now as far as stories playing themselves out, is that last week I came to you and I knew, I knew people would literally switch the podcast right off. After Extreme Rules, when I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, the rope broke for Finn Balor, but let's wait and see, guys. This might not have been bad. Who knows what happened there? And then this video comes out on Thursday that somebody in the arena shot and there's a guy dressed up as a cameraman and he clipped the rope that Finn Balor fell from. The video didn't come out from any official WWE sources. It just came out from a fan. And I go, okay, the plot thickens. And I think to myself, ha ha, 
you're all going to see I was right. These are simple storytelling elements that were playing themselves out. And then SmackDown comes on. And nothing. And I'm like, what? Nothing? This is like, and they keep doing this to me. They keep playing with my emotions as a Finn Balor fan. I'm sitting here looking at Finn Balor and Roman Reigns size each other up on the road to SummerSlam and going, oh my God, this is what I've been waiting for. This is what I want to see. And they go, contract signing between Finn Balor and Roman Reigns. And I go, man, I really thought it was going to be John Cena versus Roman Reigns. But this is amazing. I might want this even more. This is unbelievable. And Finn Balor comes out. And then Happy Corbin, who at the time wasn't even happy, shoves Finn Balor out of the way. John Cena shoves Happy, about to be Happy Corbin. And John Cena just signs the contract. And Finn Balor's like, okay. And I'm like, why don't we see Finn Balor furious about this? And he said in a couple interviews or something that he'd like to fight John Cena, but there's no resolution there. Match just happens. Roman Reigns beats John Cena. Nobody even mentions Finn Balor. All right. So then Finn Balor goes, okay, now can I have a title shot? And they go, yeah, but you're going to have to bring out the demon because Roman Reigns is going to annihilate you. And that's fine. I don't mind that. And Finn Balor goes, okay, the demon's coming back. He's coming back. And he's going to fight Roman Reigns at this pay-per-view. And then Roman Reigns is like, yeah, but right before the pay-per-view, I just want to let you know that after the pay-per-view, I'm fighting Brock Lesnar. And it's like, well, I mean, okay. I thought it was going there, but could we at least wait until that pay-per-view is over before we announce it? Let's, let's put all, let's put the full spotlight on this demon versus Roman Reigns match. And then you go, no, Brock Lesnar. Also, we'll do Demon versus Roman Reigns before, but Brock Lesnar versus Roman's coming up. You're like, all right, okay. Well, still, let me pay attention to this Demon match. And then the Demon match happens, and he gets his heartbeat going and everything, and the rope breaks. And Roman Reigns pins Finn Balor because the rope broke. And I sat here, and I said, come on. You don't really think it's just going to be the rope broke, and that's just the end of the story, do you? Tune in on Friday night. I tuned in on Friday night. I guess the rope broke and that's the end of the story because I got nothing. I got nothing. No mention of, I, I don't think Finn Balor was drafted. I guess I'll get drafted on Raw, but nothing uh, about any kind of justification for what happened at Extreme Rules. And that's what I was looking for. That's what I was waiting for. So I was very disappointed, very disappointed that there's nothing from my man Finn Balor. There's no reason why Finn Balor should not be a reasonable contender in the main event. I'm not saying strap the rocket to him. I'm not saying put the company behind him. I'm not saying put the belt on him today. What are you doing? All I'm saying is there are steps being taken that I feel like are not conducive to to, to Finn Balor being taken seriously as a main event contender. And I don't know, maybe that's where the King of the Rings is going to come into effect for him. But something's got to give here. Something's got to happen. I don't know what he's going to be doing in Crown Jewel. I've got a couple of predictions for Crown Jewel based on how it was going. I talked about this a little bit on the Thursday podcast as well. But we find out that we're uh, doing uh, Roman Reigns versus Brock Lesnar. We're doing the triple threat. uh, Becky Lynch versus Sasha Banks versus Bianca Belair. That goes down at Crown Jewel, which is going to be very, very interesting. Um... And in order to keep that triple threat intact, the rules of the draft, the rosters, 
won't go into effect until the night after Crown Jewel. So we'll still spend a couple weeks building up that match. Um, I would imagine that the rumors will quite possibly end up being true. I don't know that anything's official, but I read on the internet that they're going to do the King of the Ring and the Queen's Crown Finals at Crown Jewel. I don't know if that's true, but if it is true, then that would make sense. And I would think, especially because we know for a fact that the draft takes effect the night after Crown Jewel. We know for a fact that Drew McIntyre is coming over to SmackDown. We also know that last week on Raw, we ended with Drew McIntyre staring down Big E. I would imagine you're going to see Drew McIntyre versus Big E at Crown Jewel. What does that leave for Bob Lashley? Well, of course, I think we're going to get our Goldberg versus Bob Lashley SummerSlam return match at Crown Jewel, which I think is appropriate. I love the fact that the title's not on the line. I love the fact that there actually is a story. It's probably the most I've cared about a Goldberg match uh, in several years. I think it's uh, I think it's the way to go. I think it's a, a good look for both of them. And even if Goldberg wins, nobody gets hurt. Bob Lashley will be absolutely fine. He can come back after Crown Jewel, and I don't think he will have lost anything. Before we get into the King of the Ring and everything like that, I do want to recommend that you guys check out uh, the FMW Dark Side of the Ring show that came on uh, last week. There's the most recent episode of Dark Side of the Ring. Um, I know that there are a lot of wrestling fans that are very anti-explosion match, anti-death match, think it's garbage wrestling, you know, and all that. It's just, I think that people who close themselves off to death matches, as we've talked about on the podcast a lot, that happens. And that's, it is what it is. But I think the story of Onita, Atsushi Onita, and what he did with FMW is one of those stories that should be known amongst all wrestling fans. And Dark Side has made it very, very possible. So check out that if you get a chance. The official announcement was made. The King of the Ring is coming back and it's being joined by the Queen's Crown, the first ever all-female King of the Ring tournament that WWE has done. It starts on SmackDown on Friday. It'll go on uh, on Raw as well on Monday. So we're going to have a, a, a co-branded men's and women's King of the Ring tournament that you would assume is going to last. Nothing's been made clear, but you would assume that it's going to last over the course of at least a few weeks, right? So I thought today we should talk about the history of the King of the Ring, what it's been in WWE, and why we're all so attached to it. You know, there was a lot of excitement when this King of the Ring uh, uh, announcement was made because people have been waiting for the King of the Ring to return. Everybody has different viewpoints of how the King of the Ring or how their ideal version of King of the Ring is competed. For me, I think the best way to do it is the way they originally started doing it on pay-per-view. And that is an eight-person, single elimination, one-night tournament. I think that the idea of one superstar going on a journey across three credible opponents all in the same night to finally overcome and succeed and call himself King of the Ring is exactly what this tournament should all be about. I feel like when it's done over the course of several weeks, while it can still be cool and it can still tell a story over the course of weeks, it's not quite the same as the journey that one has to take in one night. The King of the Ring tournament was started as a one-night tournament. I think most WWE fans that are around the same age as me 
probably think of the King of the Ring as the tournament that was introduced in 1993 on WWE pay-per-view. And it's interesting because King of the Ring is the only, King of the Ring became the fifth WWE pay-per-view. There was the big four, Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, SummerSlam, Survivor Series. And then in 1993, a fifth pay-per-view, a June tradition was added to the WWE roster and that was King of the Ring. And I don't know why, but it feels like everything that happened before like 91 cannot be messed with. This is this is cemented into WWE legacy and tradition. But if it happened after 91, we may end up getting rid of it. I mean, I guess you could argue that Survivor Series changed completely from, you know, teams of five strive to survive to the one night of the year when Raw and SmackDown compete in head-to-head competition. But the Survivor Series still exists. We've never gone a year without a Survivor Series. And not only have we gone multiple years, I mean, it's been since 2002 that the last King of the Ring pure pay-per-view was fought, but we've also gone many years since 93 without actually having an active king in the WWE. So the King of the Ring was not actually started in 1993. No, the King of the Ring was uh, started in 1985. It actually took place um, on, on live events. So the first two King of the Rings, 1985 and 1986, were in Foxborough, Massachusetts. 1987 until 1991 was in Providence, Rhode Island. There was no King of the Ring tournament in 1990. And there was no King of the Ring tournament in 1992. 1993, they brought it to pay-per-view. And I know what you're thinking. Well, we knew that there was a King of the Ring tournament that happened before the pay-per-view because there were kings in the WWE. And while, yes, that's true, only one of those televised kings was actually crowned via a King of the Ring tournament. So in 1985, the first King of the Ring tournament in Foxborough, Massachusetts, was won by Don Morocco. And from 1985 until 91, skipping 1990, for all except one, these tournaments were actually 16-man tournaments that were that took place in one night in an arena. One year, it was a 12-man tournament, but they were all over eight men. Now, the reason why uh, I wouldn't go with a 16-man tournament in one night is because inevitably, you end up with a lot of short matches. You know, we saw a 16-man tournament most recently, uh, to my knowledge, on pay-per-view at Survivor Series Deadly Games in, what was that, 1998? So, and 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 that tournament was full of short matches and schmazes and, you know, littered in, there were a few okay matches. But eight matches, you're able to pull off some really good stuff. But so 1985, Don Morocco wins. It's 1986 that the winner of the tournament actually brings the crown onto TV. So in 1986, Harley Race won the King of the Ring tournament. The next year, in 1987, Macho Man Randy Savage won the King of the Ring tournament, and I know what you're thinking. Oh, that's how we got Macho King. That is not how we got Macho King. So the televised crown, to my understanding, was won by Harley Race at this live event in 1986, last eliminating Pedro Morales in Foxborough, Massachusetts. Harley Race was then introduced on television as King Harley Race, and it lended him the credibility to become a villain that could compete with Hulk Hogan. See, Harley Race had come in as a decorated champion, of course, as an icon of NWA wrestling, but 
and various territories, but WWE didn't acknowledge any territories or organizations that existed outside of their bubble. So they couldn't bring in, it's like when they brought in Ric Flair and they just called him the real world champion because it's like, we want you to bring your credibility with you, but we don't want to give any credibility to the organization where you came from. So they brought Harley Race in and they made him the king by winning this tournament and then he could call himself the king and challenge Hulk Hogan and instantly be this person who's a main eventer, even though his history in the WWE was nil. And this is something that, that we'll see throughout the history of the King of the Ring tournament, the idea that winning the tournament immediately puts you in a main event position, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But what would happen with the crown that Harley Race won is that Harley would end up holding that crown until he got legitimately injured, had to step aside, and he would then give the crown. He would crown Haku as the new king of the WWE. And Haku would wrestle as King Haku until Haku lost that crown to Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Again, this is not tournament action. This is just the crown getting switched. Haku lost to Hacksaw Jim Duggan. He became King Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who eventually would lose to the Macho Man Randy Savage, who would become the Macho King Randy Savage. And that's where we would get the Macho King who reigned uh, from, you know, WrestleMania still like 1990, 1991. That's where you get Macho King from. But Macho Man had actually won the King of the Ring tournament in 1987. He was just not televised as WWE's King of the Ring. So then in 1988, Ted DiBiase wins the King of the Ring tournament. Again, this is now, we've moved on to Providence, Rhode Island, same place where Randy Savage won it. And Ted DiBiase is the 1988 King of the Ring winner. And then in 1989, Tito Santana wins the King of the Ring crown. As I said, there would be no live event King of the Ring tournament in 1990. And in 1991, Bret the Hitman Hart would win the King of the Ring tournament, last defeating Erwin R. Scheister. So in 1991, Bret Hart would win the King of the Ring tournament on a non-televised live event. In 1992, Bret Hart would win the WWE Championship at a non-televised live event. And in 1993, Bret Hart would go on to pay-per-view and win the first ever televised pay-per-view King of the Ring tournament. When the King of the Ring tournament was announced as a pay-per-view, that was the hype. Basically, what was going on on this pay-per-view was the first, they called it the first, King of the Ring tournament and... Yokozuna versus Hulk Hogan in the rematch. Now, for the sake of this conversation, we are not talking about King of the Ring pay-per-views. We're strictly talking about tournaments, so we probably won't talk a lot about the other stuff that happened at these pay-per-views. 1993, after losing the WWE Championship at WrestleMania 9 to Yokozuna, Bret Hart goes into the King of the Ring. We had 16 men in the tournament. And when I say in the tournament, I mean we had a round of 16 men that were in qualifying matches leading up to the pay-per-view, although it was probably 15 because Bret Hart had a bye going in. But we had a first round that competed on television that led to an eight-man single elimination one-night tournament. This, to me, is the best one-night King of the Ring tournament on pay-per-view. It is the first, but it is the best, and that is primarily because, I mean, it's three great 
Bret the Hitman Hart matches in a single night. He goes through Razor Ramon, Mr. Perfect, and Bam Bam Bigelow to be crowned King of the Ring as a good guy, which as you'll see on the list, there's not a ton of hero King of the Rings, but this one worked. I think that the purpose of this was to remind people that Bret Hart was still to be taken seriously. Um, You could argue that a King of the Ring tournament for most would not be enough to do it. I do not think that the reason at the end of this tournament that people continued to take Bret Hart seriously was because simply he was crowned king. I think that it was because Bret Hart went out and had three classic matches over the course of one pay-per-view. And I think ultimately, this is the prototypical King of the Ring tournament. Ultimately, this is what the King of the Ring tournament should be about 100% of the time. Either having a villain that spoils the... There's three types of King of the Rings, and we'll see it actually in the first three King of the Rings. One is the good guy who simply by grit, determination, and hard work has three matches, all of which have to be very good, and somehow finds a way to win every single time. Three matches against three very good opponents that leaves you with this knowledge of, wow, this guy is on a different level. That can be done with the King of the Ring crown. The other is the villain who comes in and spoils it who's not necessarily the greatest villain ever, usually a monster or something like that, but a villain that just comes in and spoils everything and he's unbeatable and and the King of the Ring tournament is used to announce that he is a threat to the rest of the roster. And the third great prototypical King of the Ring is the villain who is actually a great wrestler. The villain who would be a mid-card villain, but has gone out here to put the world on notice that not only is he great, but he knows it. Now, later on, the King of the Ring tournament would be used for something else, and that's for a villain to think that he's actually a king. But we'll get to that. So that first tournament is Bret Hart showing the world that there is nobody who's on his level by having three classic matches against three credible opponents in one night and winning and being crowned king. And Bret Hart did not did not call himself King Bret Hart after that. He did not come to the ring with a scepter. It was simply uh, another notch on his belt. It was another award. This is a former WWE champion, former Intercontinental champion, former tag team champion, and a King of the Ring tournament winner. Which I think, unless you're really playing it up villainously and you only do that sparingly, using it as a credit, I think is inevitably the best use of the King of the Ring title. In 1994, we followed the same formula. A round of qualifying matches in which eight winners showed up to the pay-per-view to compete in an eight-man single elimination tournament. In 94, we saw Owen Hart taking the crown, along with it taking on the moniker of the King of Hearts, Owen Hart. In one night, Owen beat Tatanka, the one, two, three kid and Razor Ramon. The Razor Ramon match is very good. He wins it with the help of Jim the Anvil Nightheart. So it's not like, it's still a villainous thing. And the one, two, three kid match is great. The second round match between Owen and the one, two, three kid is really, really good. But what this did was it showed you that we're coming off of WrestleMania 10 where Owen beat Bret Hart in the opening match 
but Bret Hart won the WWE Championship. So at the King of the Ring where Bret Hart uh, is actually in the WWE Championship match against then Intercontinental Champion Diesel, who, by the way, from 93 to 94, that's four classic King of the Ring pay-per-view matches that Bret Hart had all in a row because the Diesel match is great. Uh, Owen now sits there with the crown, now calling himself the King of Hearts, and the world is put on notice that the victory against Bret Hart at WrestleMania 10 was no fluke. That Owen Hart was here to stay, and you are looking at a now main event caliber villain. I think the King of the Ring tournament did probably as much to define Owen Hart as anybody. I think Owen did more with that King of the Ring crown than just about anybody and did so successfully. Coming into 95, 95 is where we we don't have necessarily the the classic matches. 95, we have the monster who wins it in a way that is not the most exciting in the world, um, but comes out of it in a position where it's like, okay, now we're going to have to watch out for this guy. Now, there is this thing that there's an assumed, at least in this era, there was this assumed stipulation. And sometimes they would outwardly say it and sometimes not that the winner of the King of the Ring tournament would receive a shot at the WWE Championship. Bret Hart winning the King of the Ring tournament in 1993 did not get a WWE title opportunity. Uh, Instead, he got a rivalry with Jerry the King Lawler uh, and then had to win the Royal Rumble in 1994 along with Lex Luger in order to get that title opportunity. However, Owen Hart in 94 did win the tournament and go on to SummerSlam to face his brother Brett for the WWE Championship. And the same thing happened in 95. Mabel would become King Mabel, and he would win the King of the Ring tournament and go on to SummerSlam to face Diesel in an absolute classic, I say with my tongue, firmly planted inside of my cheek. So this tournament on paper, I mean, it's it's 1995 uh, to a T. You know, they, they, they went again, eight matches, I mean, eight men on the pay-per-view, 16 to start with qualifying matches on TV. But on TV, I mean, Mantar was in a qualifying match. Duke the Dumpster Drossy. Jacob Blue. Eli Blue wasn't in it. Jacob Blue was of the Blue Brothers. Adam Baum was in one. But Mabel, wait till you hear the names that were in this tournament. Mabel, in the first round, defeats The Undertaker. The Undertaker is in the first round of this King of the Ring tournament. He goes down to Mabel. The second round, Mabel is to face the winner of Shawn Michaels and the Supreme Fighting Machine, comma. Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. So theoretically, in 1995, had things gone differently, we could have had a second round King of the Ring tournament match between The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. And instead, Mabel beat The Undertaker, Shawn Michaels and the Supreme Fighting Machine, comma, went to a 15-minute time limit draw. So Mabel got a bye. And then Mabel ended up defeating Savio Vega in the finals. So where Bret Hart became king of the ring by defeating Mr. Perfect, Razor Ramon, and Bam Bam Bigelow in in, in one night on pay-per-view. 
And Owen Hart became the king of the ring by beating Tatanka, the 1-2-3 kid, and Razor Ramon all in one night on pay-per-view. And so much drama in that match because Razor was now a good guy. He had lost the year before to Bret Hart in the first round. And it was like, okay, Bret, uh, uh, Razor, now that he's a hero, is going to get that crown. He's going to make up for last year. And Owen was still able to beat him. All that drama and all that potential great wrestling was taken away from us by having Mabel defeat The Undertaker, get a bye, and then beat Savio Vega in the finals. Luckily, that would not go on to become the prototypical. But, I mean, the idea that you called him King Mabel, and that's what I mean, like, that's where these King of the Ring tournaments can be dangerous. If you just use King of the Ring tournaments to elevate somebody, we can end up with more Mabels. And I'll get into that as we review where this could go this year and what it means. But you don't want more. God bless him. I love Big Daddy V, Viscera. I have no problems with Mabel. But the idea of him being the King of the Ring, SummerSlam main event, let's, let's, let's pump the brakes. A year later in 1996, we go back to the Owen Hart school of thought again, Still doing the eight-man single elimination one-night tournament. On TV, the 16 men that that had uh, uh, matches that were qualifiers for the King of the Ring tournament that didn't make it. You're talking about Goldust, Ultimate Warrior, Yokozuna. Vader is in the first round of this tournament. But the winner of this tournament, Savio Vega, is back. He lost in the finals of 1995. In 1996, he thinks this might be his year, but he goes down. To a man named Stone Cold Steve Austin. Stone Cold goes to the second round. He defeats the uh, much-hyped rookie that had come in that year at WrestleMania 12. Marvelous Mark Merrill. Although Marvelous catches him with a good boot to the lip earlier in the match. And uh, Austin has to leave to get stitches. And then come back for the third round. And in the third and final round... He is facing off against a returning Jake the Snake Roberts. Now, this is a beautiful story where Jake the Snake Roberts, uh, a legend who's been gone from the WWE for four years, is finally back and has finally got his life on track, has finally found Jesus, and is going to be an inspiration to all of us until Stone Cold Steve Austin ruins it all. And Stone Cold Steve Austin, much like Owen Hart, a superstar that on paper maybe was not destined for the main event, has come to the King in the Ring tournament and has whooped ass and left without people being able to deny him. Oh, and it didn't hurt that at the end of those three matches, he drops the Austin 316 promo. And that is why this is so important. The Austin 316 promo doesn't have nearly the same effect if Steve Austin just beat one guy. Even if he just beat two guys, it doesn't have nearly the same effect. The fact that Steve Austin took out Savio Vega, Mark Merrow, and Jake the Snake Roberts all in the same night is one of the things that makes that so special. That's why I believe in the eight-man tournament one night or so much. 1997 is when the Attitude Era starts to slip in. That is the year that we move down from eight to four men. All we do is the semifinals and the finals on pay-per-view. We have eight men on TV that go through qualifying matches, not 16. And on pay-per-view, Triple H, who the rumor was, was supposed to win in 96, but was punished after farewell to the click 
beats Ahmed Johnson and Mankind. Now, he and Mankind do have about a 20-minute match uh, in that final. But he defeats Mankind, and Triple H becomes the king of the ring. Now, uh, Mabel and Owen Hart would both walk around. Owen didn't really wear the crown much, but he called himself the king of hearts. Mabel walked around with the crown and called himself King Mabel. Stone Cold Steve Austin used the king of the ring just like Bret Hart did in the best way possible, where it was just a credit. Triple H, it's a hilarious story. What I've heard is that Triple H got that crown and it was the big poofy velvety crown. It looks ridiculous. And they apparently made a bunch of them because every time Triple H got his hands on that crown, he would find a way to destroy it. He would find a way to hit his opponent with it or do something with it over the course of a match where the crown would be totally destroyed so he wouldn't have to wear it because he thought it was so stupid because Triple H also wanted to do the Bret Hart and Steve Austin route and just hold the title, just have it be another credit that he's accomplished. Be one of those guys that maybe it wasn't written in stone that he would come in and be a main event villain but be undeniable because of his performance at the King of the Ring. Triple H had a lot working against him. He did not have the three rounds all in one night, and he was made to wear that stupid, stupid crown. But God bless the brain on that guy. He tried to destroy it every chance that he got. That's why there's multiples. 1998, we have a 16-man tournament both of the first rounds are on TV. And on pay-per-view, we, again, only have a four-man tournament. Ken Shamrock, it's an opportunity to try to put this man on a pedestal. He ends up beating uh, Jeff Jarrett and The Rock in one night. Big, especially The Rock, big victory, even at the time in 1998. Uh, but generally speaking, by then, the King of the Ring was tournament itself was being outshined by everything else that was on the pay-per-view. Of course, King of the Ring 98, we see Undertaker versus Mankind in that Hell in a Cell match. And the big storyline of the night was Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kane, first blood. Kane winning the WWE Championship. Now, this is another thing that takes away from the King of the Ring crown. If you're going to win the King of the Ring crown, it has to be, like, for most of these that we've read so far, it was the real story coming out of the night. Of course, you know, Hulk Hogan losing the title, of course, was a big story coming out of 93. And there were other moments uh, before 98. But for the most part, maybe not in 97, but the king being crowned was the highlight of the pay-per-view. In 99, we're back to an eight-man tournament on pay-per-view, and uh, we're back to, I think, using the tournament to try to make somebody but I don't think it was done effectively. So Billy Gunn wins the King of the Ring tournament in 1999. And this is when they're trying to make Billy Gunn into a single star, which I don't think ever really happened in WWE on the level that they wanted it to. I think that the reason that the King of the Ring tournament didn't work for him, they had 16 competing it again, qualifying round on television. But Billy Gunn went through Ken Shamrock, Kane, and X-Pac. Which is a big deal. I mean, that's a, that's a murderer's row there to go through. But the fact is that Billy Gunn beat Ken Shamrock due to a referee stoppage. So he didn't really beat, beat the sitting king. Ken Shamrock had won the year before and Billy Gunn did not pin him. The referee stoppage, Ken Shamrock got disqualified. 
Kane in the second round is a big victory. But if you're going to have Kane and X-Pac, don't beat Kane in the second round and then have your finals with X-Pac. I get it. I think that the idea at the time was the drama of two DX members in the finals. But realistically, if you want to make Billy Gunn winning the King of the Ring tournament a big deal, you have Kane tear through his matches. You remind everybody that a year earlier, Kane had won the WWE Championship from Stone Cold Steve Austin at that very pay-per-view. And then you have Billy Gunn beat Kane to go like, oh my God, the wars that Billy Gunn has gone through. But he would also have to legitimately beat Ken Shamrock, I think, in order for that to be effective. We get to 2000. And in 2000, get this. We have eight men on pay-per-view competing the way I like it. Television, 32 men. 32 men started. So there were two rounds of King of the Ring qualifiers on TV. Almost everybody on the roster was involved in some way, shape, or form in this King of the Ring tournament. But once we get to the pay-per-view, it's eight men. Kurt Angle wins. This is 2000. 2000 is Kurt Angle's time. And this is good. I mean, you know, I, I think that by now, because, you know, it wasn't so special when Triple H won and the Ken Shamrock and Billy Gunn King of the Ring crown wins kind of went completely under the radar. Kurt Angle winning the King of the Ring was not nearly as impressive as his other accolades, but it made sense because it legitimized his other accolades. Like it legitimized him being a gold medal winner and everything like that. But he also, he beat Chris Jericho, Crash Holly, and Rikishi all in one night. Um, I guess the idea was that he beat Rikishi in the finals because, I don't know, maybe Rikishi was the new hot superstar. And, you know, Rikishi's so big, it would be hard to beat him. But I, I would have loved to have seen Jericho and Kurt Angle instead of in the first round of pay-per-view in the finals of that tournament. Um, also, all of those matches were under 10 minutes. You know, I, 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 I don't think every match needs to be over 10 minutes, but I think some of them do, especially if you're Kurt Angle and you really want to show what you can do. In 2001, we've got uh, uh, 16 men in the tournament, but again, you've only got uh, two. You only got to beat two men because you've got a four-man tournament going into the pay-per-view. Edge wins the King of the Ring crown. He beats Rhino and Kurt Angle. Problem is, and this was supposed to be a big moment for Edge as a rookie, you know, winning this King of the Ring crown, especially since he beat Kurt Angle, the previous year's king, in the finals. But Edge won the tournament after interference. So Kurt Angle had him in the ankle lock. And Edge tapped out, but the referee was distracted. Then Shane O'Mac interferes. Edge ends up winning the King of the Ring tournament through interference, even though he's a good guy celebrating it's the fifth match on an eight match show. So it's not even close to the main event, fourth or fifth match. And then after Kurt Angle has lost to edge in the King of the ring tournament, he's back and he beats Shane McMahon in that classic street fight. And quite frankly, the Kurt Angle, Shane McMahon match is the match that you remember from that show. So I think all things considered the fact that Kurt Angle came out of that pay-per-view as a much bigger star than edge uh, you know, I'm sure the idea was that, well, Kurt Angle, we won't lose anything on him because we'll have him beat Shane McMahon, but we'll still have Edge be the king of the ring. It'll give him the rub. You can't do it. This is just, I, I feel like 
2001 is a case of having your cake and eating it too. If you want to go with Edge, you got to go with Edge. If you're not ready to go with Edge, give Kurt Angle the crown two years in a row. But, you know, don't don't lollygag this thing. See, in 2002, there was no question as to whose tournament this was. I think it would have been even better if they had done eight men, as always. But no, there were only four men. It was two rounds of tournament action on pay-per-view in 2002. In 2002, it was the first time the brands were split. So you had uh, Raw and SmackDown in each match. You know, first round on pay-per-view was Raw and SmackDown, Raw versus SmackDown, and then another Raw versus SmackDown. And then the winner of those two matches would go to the finals. The winner of those two matches, of course, Brock Lesnar and Rob Van Dam. Brock Lesnar beats Test, and then he goes to the finals against Rob Van Dam, a, 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 a credible, celebrated person. And he defeats Rob Van Dam. That was, of course, the tournament uh, that during the qualifiers, Stone Cold Steve Austin walked out on WWE because he didn't want to lose to Brock Lesnar on just a simple TV match. Stone Cold was supposed to go on to have a match with Eddie Guerrero on that pay-per-view. But uh, I think, if I remember right, Stone Cold was replaced with Ric Flair. And it was Ric Flair versus Eddie Guerrero on that pay-per-view. But it wasn't a tournament match. Um, So, yeah, Brock Lesnar. And I think that it was... uh, Used effectively for that one. I would say it was ineffective for Edge, Billy Gunn, Ken Shamrock. It was meh for Triple H. It was meh for Kurt Angle. And I think we're getting back with Brock Lesnar to what it was supposed to be for. I think it would have been stronger if he had beaten three men in one night instead of two men in one night. But it is what it is. Now, that's all null and void. Because after 2002, we're not doing King of the Ring on pay-per-view anymore. It's that 2002 is the end of the King of the Ring as a pay-per-view. And 2006 is where it changes. So Brock would obviously not run around calling himself King Brock. He would not wear a crown. He would not do any of that stuff. It was just another accolade that he had. Everything changes. Edge would not... that at Edge's year, they gave a trophy. So he never wore a crown. But all that would go away. Because in 2006... The King of the Ring, I would say it was reinvented. It was reinvented in the sense that it was no longer done on pay-per-view. But in reality, it was literally just going back to 1995. And I don't say that, I mean, 94, 95. Because 95, when you say King Mabel, it makes it seem like I'm making a statement about the talent that won the King of the Ring. When you go through all the people that have held that crown from 2006, they're all incredible. So I would say probably more the Owen, Mabel, 94, 95 era because every single one of them has decided to be a king since 06. Every single one of the kings post-Brock has decided, you know, now I'm for real a king and this is going to be my bad guy gimmick. So in 2006, they announced that the King of the Ring tournament is back. It's again dual branded, Raw and SmackDown competing. But this is this is taking the play taking place over the course of about a month uh, on various episodes of Raw and SmackDown, uh, and the finals take place at Judgment Day 2006. So only the final King of the Ring tournament match takes place on pay per view, and that's not a King of the Ring pay per view. It's Judgment Day. Uh, Booker T defeats Matt Hardy, and then a couple weeks later, Kurt Angle on SmackDown, and then goes to Judgment Day 06 to defeat Bobby Lashley. So when you look at the tournaments that he defeated in the tournament itself, 
Matt Hardy, Kurt Angle, and Lashley. I mean, that is a, a, a hell of a lineup. That might be the best lineup of opponents. I mean, it rivals Bret Hart's lineup of Razor Ramon, Mr. Perfect, and Bam Bam Bigelow, Matt Hardy, Kurt Angle, and Lashley. That's a serious lineup. But Booker T ends up becoming the king of the ring after defeating Lashley at Judgment Day 2006, and that's when the gimmick is changed and he becomes King Booker. King Booker probably up there with Owen Hart, maybe even better as the best person to have ever done the King gimmick. I don't, I think King Booker may be since like macho King Randy Savage, the best to do the gimmick after winning the King of the Ring tournament. But for four years, we didn't have that tournament. And then after 06, it would go away again. We wouldn't have a tournament in 07. And in 2008, the King of the Ring tournament would be announced as a triple tri-branded show, meaning Raw, SmackDown, and ECW. And it would take place on a single night on an episode of Raw. An eight-man tournament amongst all three brands over the course of one night. It was not on pay-per-view. It was on an episode of Raw, but still, I remember this thing. I loved it. I loved it, and I wouldn't. I would not mind this coming back on an episode of Raw or as a WWE Network special. I'm not attached to it having to be its own standalone pay-per-view. I am attached to it having to be in one night. This is the night. See, see, 2008, and people forget. In 2008, William Regal was about as hot a heel as WWE had. William Regal was the Raw general manager, and he was. Incredible. He was great. He's an extremely underrated general manager of Monday Night Raw. But he comes back to start competing again. And when this King of the Ring tournament is announced, he puts himself in it. And in the first round, Hornswoggle is his opponent. Now, I know it's a cheap victory, but it is. I mean, if you're a, if you're a crooked general manager of Monday Night Raw, Hornswoggle seems like an ideal opponent. How this chain of events, though, leads him to Fit Finley. His name's Finley. He loves to fight. As his opponent in round two, which is poetic justice, because he's going to want revenge for humiliating his little buddy Hornswoggle, he beats Finley and goes on to the King of the Ring tournament finals. And this is a perfect tournament final of a single night against CM Punk. CM Punk, who was, he was that Daniel Bryan type guy. He was that groundswell support guy, that little engine that could. It was such a big deal when he won the Money in the Bank contest. But Chris, Jer uh, Chris Jericho was defeated by CM Punk earlier in the night and Matt Hardy. So CM Punk had had a hell of a night to go through. I mean, this this is a guy who who on paper, the fans would have wanted to win, but wouldn't have expected to win watching him go through Matt Hardy, watching him go through Chris Jericho, and you're going, oh my God, this might be CM Punk's night, and he goes down to William Regal. And William Regal, after that, had a great run. Short, but great. He had to go away for a while, unfortunately. But when William Regal existed as the king of the ring and the general manager of Raw, and just having this, I mean, he was like Thanos of Monday Night Raw. He was great. I loved that era, personally. I really loved it. And... I, I thought that the character was great, and I, I, I happened to love that it happened all in one night. In 2010, 
another two years later. So now we're looking at 06, 08, and 10. The King of the Ring tournament is brought back. It's going to happen between Raw and SmackDown competitors. And it does happen in a single night. Now, a week before, they do qualifiers on Raw and on SmackDown. And then on one night on Raw, we get the tournament. Sheamus goes through Kofi Kingston, gets a bye in the second round. And in round three, defeats John Morrison, who's like, I, I, I guess, an underdog. This tournament really mimics 1995 and Mabel's win, except Sheamus is awesome. Now, I, I'm not trying to disrespect Mabel. I, I just mean Sheamus is is a great competitor. Um, but all that said, this is the era that they're really trying to make Sheamus a thing. This way, you know, he, he's won, he won the WWE Championship so quick. Now he's the king of the ring. They're just trying to see how they can turn Sheamus into a main eventer. When in reality, if they had just gone slow with Sheamus and let him beat up people, I think it all would have happened organically. The king of the ring tournament disappears for five years after that. Five years the king of the ring tournament goes away and Sheamus holds that crown. He had like a... It almost looked like a Wiccan crown that was made for him when he won that King of the Ring title. And in 2015, it's announced that the King of the Ring tournament is going to the WWE Network. Now, it's going to take place over two nights, and it's only going to be eight men over two nights, not 16 men over two nights, the way it should have been. Kind of keep harping on that point, don't I? But on Raw the night before, the eight men are announced, and then it's announced that on the Tuesday that follows Raw, we will be able to watch live on the WWE Network the semifinals and the finals of the King of the Ring tournament. So on Monday Night Raw, Wade Barrett beats Dolph Ziggler. And then the following night, he goes to the WWE Network and he defeats R-Truth and Neville, Neville being the underdog that everybody thought was going to win, to become King Barrett. And again, much like Booker T, much like William Regal, much like Sheamus, all these years later, this is this is now nine years removed from Booker T. And it's the same gimmick. Wade Barrett, Bad News Barrett, he becomes King Barrett and uh, tries to rule with an iron fist, but he doesn't actually have any authority. He just won this tournament. And then after 2015, it disappears again until four years later, uh, we get the King of the Ring tournament held over about a month of Raws and Smackdowns. And over that month, Baron Corbin beats The Miz, then Cedric Alexander. Then, after Samoa Joe and Ricochet go to a draw, he has to win a triple threat against Samoa Joe and Ricochet, and then in the finals, beat Chad Gable, who, again, you're sitting there thinking he's going to be the underdog. This is going to be what puts him over the top to spoil the whole thing. And he becomes, much like Barrett, much like Sheamus, much like Regal, much like Booker T, he becomes King Corbin. And then, in an interesting turn of events, to throw all the way back to, like, uh, 86 to 91, 92, Corbin loses the crown by losing a match to King Nakamura, who today holds the crown. Of course, in 92, after Macho King was champion, I mean, was was king, uh, Jerry Lawler held that title. But he who'd he ever beat? <laughs> he didn't beat anybody for that crown. Uh, so... That is your history of King of the Ring tournament winners in the WWE. Again, Haku, Duggan, not King of the Ring tournament winners. Lawler, not a King of the Ring tournament winner. And Macho King Randy Savage 
while he was a King of the Ring tournament winner, did not become the king by winning the King of the Ring tournament, as ironic as that all is. So the question is, what do you do with the King of the Ring tournament? Hot Dog uh, and I have been arguing. See, Hot Dog thinks that what they should do with the King of the Ring tournament is make it a November pay-per-view. Bring back the King of the Ring as a pay-per-view, make it a November pay-per-view, and the winner gets a shot at the WWE champion or the Universal champion at the Royal Rumble pay-per-view. So the King of the Ring tournament becomes the way that uh, a person gets the main event of the Royal Rumble pay-per-view. Number one, I think it's basic. Number two, I think it's asinine. I think it's basic because not a lot of thought was put into it, okay? It's just like, yeah, and then the King of the Ring can get a shot at the title. Like, yeah, I mean, the King of the Ring should get a shot at the title anyway. It shouldn't need to be a stipulation. If you're the king, you should be a main eventer. So that shouldn't matter. It's basic, I mean, it's basic because you haven't thought about the fact that there already is a standing traditional pay-per-view in November. It's called the Survivor Series. I wouldn't advocate for canceling that. But the reason really why I don't think that that works at all is because it's the exact same prize that you win in the Royal Rumble, except in the Royal Rumble, you win the WrestleMania match. And the WrestleMania match is worth way more than the Royal Rumble match. So you'd win the King of the Ring tournament to go to the Royal Rumble to not be in the Royal Rumble because you're in the title match and to watch somebody else get the same prize that you just won and probably lost and except better because they get to go to WrestleMania and you only got to go to the Royal Rumble. It really doesn't make any sense. But even the idea that you get a guaranteed championship match if you're the king, I think only lends to people like Mabel winning the King of the Ring tournament. I think that if we sit here saying where you have a guaranteed main event, then that's going to become the focus of the King of the Ring tournament. I think that the King of the Ring as a title should mean something. I think that the person who wins the King of the Ring should have had three great matches in one night. That should be what the King of the Ring means. Like they say that the Intercontinental Championship is the, is the working man's title, or at least has been at different eras in the WWE. I think that that's what the King of the Ring should be, that this is a person who has the ability to have three great matches all in a single night, and that is Bret Hart and Owen Hart and Steve Austin and Triple H and Kurt Angle and Edge and Brock Lesnar, Booker T, Regal, Sheamus, Barrett, Corbin. You know, that's what it should be about. Now, a lot of those that I just read at the end, they won it through heel tactics, and that's, that's kind of a different thing, but they all have the capability of being that person. I think that's how it should raise a person's stock. Simply through the actions. Like, it, they should be looked at as very special matches. And so when they're really good, they really mean something. Because if, let's say, you go like, okay, well, Drew McIntyre is going to win the King of the Ring. That way he can go to Royal Rumble and get the shot at Roman Reigns. Yeah, but you could, Drew McIntyre would get the shot at Roman Reigns anyway. You know? So I don't think it needs to have a, a guaranteed championship match. The questions now are who is going to be in the tournament this year? You know, I think when you're looking at Queen's crown, I don't think that that's, I think that you, well, you keep the champions out of it, obviously, but like, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, I would put Bianca Belair, Sasha Banks, Naomi, uh, uh, Carmella. I, I think Bailey's still out with her injury. Uh, 
Rhea Ripley, Nikki Ash. Yeah, it's not too tough to figure out what women are going to be in it because it's the first time this has happened. But for the men, I think that the men, whoever wins this, I, I hope that it means something. I think that Nakamura, because you go like, well, what do we do with, we already have a king. His name is uh, King Nakamura. I would put him in the tournament. He's in the first round of the tournament, no buy, no nothing. He's in the tournament, and if he wants to still be the king, he has to win the tournament like anybody else. So I would instantly put Shinsuke Nakamura in the tournament. And then, you know, I would I would put some new people in the tournament. I would allow maybe some people to shine through in the tournament. You know, I, I, I like the idea of Top Dollar, who is now going to SmackDown um, from Hit Row being in the tournament. I like the idea of Dominic Mysterio being in the tournament, you know? I like the idea of almost being in the tournament. The tournament could be a great time for Keith Lee to shine through and to and to do something new. Um but really like I I I think we have the opportunity with this tournament even if it's not done in one night to take it back to the Bret Hart era. You know, we have the opportunity to sit there and say, like, look, I know that at the last pay-per-view, this guy didn't look as good as he should have. And I know that we have flirted with putting this guy in the main event so much and not really pulled the trigger. And every time there's been somebody else, we go with the other guy. But this guy, we know he's good and he's always going to be right there. If over the course of the next few weeks, you have Finn Balor kick ass, you have Finn Balor go out there and just have some classics and then go to the finals of this King of the Ring tournament and have a knockdown drag out like with Keith Lee or or with whoever. With somebody that you can really hang and go toe-to-toe with him. I love the idea of the tournament finals being a 20-minute knockdown drag out Finn Balor versus, it could even be Finn Balor versus Shinsuke Nakamura if you really want to light people's heads on fire. And then have Finn Balor come out looking really strong and don't do the gimmick, don't have him wear a crown, don't do anything. You just, that way you can introduce him. He's got to have something. He's got to have some kind of credit, you know? That way he's not the guy that just lost to Roman Reigns, the guy that fell off the rope or the guy that lost his contract. It's, here he is, the king of the ring, Finn Balor. He doesn't, he doesn't have to do any gimmicks. Maybe he just puts a little, he paints a little crown on the Balor logo that's on the back of his jacket or something like that. The prince becomes the king. That's what it should all be about. Because this year, the prince becomes the king. That's 100% what it should be about. My pick for the 2021 King of the Ring winner is absolutely Finn Balor. And for the queen's crown, I really wouldn't mind if Miss Dakota Kai came in and spoiled everything. Although Raquel Gonzalez getting drafted and spoiling everything would be fun too, but I love the idea of Dakota Kai coming in out of nowhere and just be just just holding that queen's crown, uh, put somebody in that in that big picture right away. I love it. I can't wait to see how it unfolds. I love the King of the Ring. I've loved going over it with you. If you've got any thoughts on the King of the Ring tournament, you can email me notsamwrestling at gmail.com. Don't forget to head over to Apple Podcasts and uh, hit five stars, leave a review, do the whole thing. Uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel where I'll be posting uh, a special video version of this King of the Ring oral history uh, over at youtube.com slash Uh And I'll either see you next week 
or I'll see you on Thursday at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling. Have a good one, everybody. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Not Sam. <laughs>